So today is State of the Family Part 2. Last month, Justin um, taught us on State of the Family Part 1. And every summer in June, we give a State of the Family sermon. And what that is, is it's a time for us to look at who God has called us to be as a church, as the people of God, and where we need to be challenged as that group, that people of God, to move deeper into the call that God has for us as his church here at Cornerstone. Um, Last month, when Justin gave State of the Family Part 1, he talked about our identity as the people of Christ and how God brings together all kinds of people to be a family who aren't supposed to be together as a family, that the world says you're not supposed to be together as a family, but God does that in the church, and he's done that and is doing that at Cornerstone. So Justin talked about, I mean, there could be all kinds of diversity, whether it's political diversity or socioeconomic diversity, um, cultural diversity, maybe the, the, the religious tradition or the kind of the church heritage that we grew up in. God brings us from all different places into this place that he calls Cornerstone, we call Cornerstone Christian Fellowship, He calls his bride, and we're a diverse group of people with a very particular call together, but we gather under the name of Christ. So today we're going to discuss what this family that God has brought together is supposed to do. What are we supposed to do now, today, at this point in our history at Cornerstone Christian Fellowship? I want to start off by telling three stories about three different people. So the first story is about a boy, and this boy was uh, born into a broken family. Um, His dad wasn't around during the pregnancy or the birth, and he was in and out during the formative years of this boy's life. Uh, But he was never really invested in this little guy's life. So this, his mother grew up in not having proper parenting modeled for her. So she had no idea how to raise her son. Um, Mom doesn't feed the kid really well. At, from a young age, she'd put like Kool-Aid into his bottle and throw it into the crib with him because that's what he liked and that's what would keep him quiet, right? Um, the baby grows up into a little kid and is surrounded by a pretty unhealthy extended family, you know, of aunts, uncles, and cousins in and out and some family friends. Um, there is a constant relational tension that exists in the home and no healthy modeling for how to engage this tension and bring health to these relationships. Um, into his teenage years and early adulthood, he becomes the environment that he's been raised in. Um, it's all he knows. He speaks harshly to those around him. Um, he deals in very unhealthy ways in relationships, can't keep a job, and essentially just looks out for his own survival because nobody else is looking out for his survival. Rather than contributing positively to society, um, he ends up taking from it in terms of resources and in terms of just negatively impacting the environment where he moves and lives. He has a few interactions with a local church, but that's mostly to get resources when he has times of need. If there is one word to define this individual's life, it's survival. Just do what it takes to get myself through each day, day by day. And by all accounts, this is a pretty tragic existence. Second story is of a girl. She was born into a loving family. Mom and dad were there. They talked to her. They held her. They spoke loving words to her as a newborn. Um, they spoke a warming, uh, they spoke affirming words to her before she was even born. Um, the parents read parenting books so they would know how to do it the right way, Right. And this little girl was provided proper nutrition as a newborn. She received milk, some fruit juice, but not too much because that has sugar in it, you know, water, proper food. Um, She grew up around a caring extended family and family friends. Um, They looked out for her. They cared for her. They affirmed her. They disciplined her appropriately. The family went on vacations to the beach and to the mountains together, so she got to hang out with her cousins in all these awesome places, and they spent Christmases and Thanksgiving, just a really healthy family environment. Um, She had lots of opportunities as a kid. Um, She started dancing, but didn't like dance too much, so ended up playing travel soccer, and she um, did summer camps and was very successful, and so grew up just very affirmed with her gifts and skills, people saying, hey, you're, you're good at this. You do really, really well at this. Um, really built into her self-esteem. Uh, 
She became what was around her. She went to college. She was polite, considerate of others, and helpful to her neighbors and to society. She even gave money overseas to assist with poverty in third world countries. Um, As an adult, she volunteers at a local soup kitchen. Um, She works in the family business, which is a well-established and respected institution in their community. She is a regular church attendee at a Bible-teaching church, but her true passion lies in the success of and the name associated with that family business. The gospel hangs nicely as an accessory to her life, but she is known as the daughter of this family who does this, who helps run this business and is good for the community. And she also attends a nice Bible teaching church. Also, a pretty tragic existence that just looks a little different. Third story. This one is of a child born. Proper nutrition is provided. Words of life are spoken. But this child does not grow up in their own home of birth, but is adopted out into a different home. This new home is solid. Um, Brokenness, deception, and false identity have no place in this home. There is great purpose placed on this child's life as they watch their adopted family live humbly, compassionately, truthfully, transformatively. The child knows they are chosen to be part of this special family and to live out a purpose that goes beyond themselves. Not all the kids who had the chance to live in this home received all that was and could have been, but this particular child did. Let me read more of that story to you. For you have been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. As the scriptures say, people are like grass. Their beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And that word is the good news that was preached to you. So get rid of all evil behavior. Be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. Like newborn babies, you will crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow up into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment now that you have had a taste of the Lord's kindness. You are coming to Christ who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. As the scriptures say, I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem, chosen for great honor, and anyone who trusts in him will not be disgraced. Yes, you who trust in him recognize the honor God has given him. But for those who reject him, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And he is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they do not obey God's word. And so they meet the fate that was planned for them. But you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation. God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. God, let your word burn in us today. Let it speak to who we are in you. Let your word come alive, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. So Peter writes this letter to a bunch of Christians that are scattered about. And we've, we've gone through this passage recently. We're in 1 Peter, the end of chapter 1, going in through the first part, the first half of chapter 2. Peter writes this to a bunch of Christians who are scattered about. They're facing some level of rejection and aggression from their neighbors because of their beliefs in Jesus. Peter writes to remind them who they are so that they don't abandon their faith out of fear, out of fear of rejection, out of fear of being beat up, um, out of fear of being humiliated. And so that they know how to live in the midst of these attacks that are coming their way. 
They're not simply to survive. They are meant to thrive and to transform the culture around them. But it's hard. It's hard. They're in a place that this is not easy. Where does it begin? It begins at that point of birth, that point of rebirth, if you will. We were designed to ingest the word of God. Peter says in this passage that our life comes, it has its beginning, it has its um, initiation in the eternal living word of God. More on that in a second. That's in verse 23 of chapter 1. Your life, our life, comes from the eternal living word of God. So if God's word is so vital to our life, it is the thing that it comes out of and it's the thing that sustains our life, then these other words that swirl around us, chapter 2, first verse, deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, unkind speech, these other things that have these words that are hurtful, disruptive, broken, tearing down instead of building up. Get rid of that kind of nourishment. Get rid of that kind of word and fill yourself up with the right word. That word, those words, those are empty calories, right? That's Kool-Aid or soda that tastes really good and we want it and we know it's not good for us, but we take it because it's good for the moment. When we speak the way chapter two, verse one starts, we are compelled to speak that way or so we think. We are defensive. Somebody attacks us, so we attack back. Somebody hurts us, so we hurt with our words. Somebody says bad words to us, we have bad words back. We don't have something we want, we speak jealous words. But in the end, those words end up hurting us. Terrible nourishment. But they feel in the moment like they're going to give us something that we desire so badly. But then they fail to deliver. And so Peter says that we have to crave something else. You have to crave a kind of pure spiritual milk. Cry out for this kind of nourishment because nourishment, this is the thing that lasts. This is what will fill you up the way that you're to be filled up in Christ. Do you have a food that you crave? Yeah, tell your neighbor the food that you crave. All food. No, no, no. It's got to be one or two. Tell your neighbor. Look at your neighbor. Tell your neighbor what food you crave or most often crave. We love to eat. I can tell by the volume rising, by the conversation happening. We love our food. All right. Now, that should be enough. That should do it. Bring it back in. We might need to dim the lights again. Okay. Chances are, I'm almost willing to say, I guarantee that there's a story behind that food. There's a story behind that food. Like, it's somebody who made it. There's a memory. There's a time and a place when you would eat that food, that it's special with certain people. There's a context to that, right? So maybe that's food that, you know, Grandma made, and she had her own special sauce, and it's been handed down to the next generation, you know, and it's secret, and nobody else can know about it. Maybe it's that kind of story. Or maybe it's like my story, where I crave Chipotle. Yes, I crave the food from a chain restaurant. But there's a story behind that, and I'm going to tell you. So Courtney and I lived in Denver, Colorado for five years. And um, Chipotle started in Denver, Colorado. And I got to eat at the very first Chipotle. Now, there were other Chipotles open by the time I found Chipotle, but the, the original Chipotle I've eaten there. When I go into other local Chipotles around the country, because I travel around and visit other Chipotles around the country, sometimes you'll see a picture hanging in there of the original Chipotle. And I say to whoever's with me, I've eaten at that counter. Because it matters to me, because, because Denver matters to me. That place matters to me. Like God called me at a very crucial time in my life to the city and then spoke to me about my life and my future calling there while I was there. So Denver matters to me. So that city matters to me. And when Courtney and I, we, Caleb was born in Denver. And so on Friday nights, when Caleb was just a few months old, a month old, Caleb goes in the car seat, we go to Chipotle, Caleb sits on the table in Chipotle, and 
eats pure spiritual milk, I suppose, as a one-month-old, and we ate our burritos. So I had these memories of what our life was like. You know, like, none of our family lived in Denver. Like, we were doing life on our own, you know? We were living on our own. We had our own jobs and our own neighbors, and, 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 and we were, like, figuring life out thousands of miles away from our families. And Chipotle was part of that story for us. So it tastes good, but it's also part of our story. So when Chipotle was coming to Lebanon, I freaked out. And I went there on the first day and the second day, I'm pretty sure. And my family got mad at me because they only got to go on the second day. Anyway, your story and my story are wrapped up in the word of God, much like we have this story around our foods that we eat and why and with whom, this story. And the word of God in this passage, it's, it's food. It's food. And when we read the word in it, we see God in his word clearly, but we also see ourselves We see it in the joy and pain of the narrative of Scripture. We see it in the pain, the belief, and the disbelief of Scripture. Our story lines up with the story that's written in Scripture. We were designed to engage God's Word intimately because it tells about our Creator, and it tells about how we are linked to our Creator. The Word is like a meal that we crave because the story that's in it. Like the food we crave because the story that surrounds it. And so we eat it. We eat it because it vibes with who we are and it tastes so good. Flip your bulletins over to the back, that top left-hand box that says reflect on it. This is what scripture has to say about scripture. How sweet your words taste to me. They are sweeter than honey, says the psalmist. Jeremiah, when I discovered your words, I devoured them. They are my joy and my heart's delight. For I bear your name, O Lord God of heaven's armies. It doesn't say I I discovered your words and I devoured them. They're my joy and my heart's delight because they solve every problem in my life. Or because when I'm bored, it's good reading or whatever. No, it says, I devoured them. They're my joy and my heart's delight. For I bear your name, O Lord, God of heaven's armies. I'm connected to you. You're the word. I bear your name. These words mean something to me. They tell me about me and they tell me about you. And they make that connection. Ezekiel, the voice said to me, son of man, eat what I'm giving you, eat this scroll, then go and give its message to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he fed me the scroll, fill your stomach with this, he said. And when I ate it, it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. New Testament revelation. So I took the small scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet in my mouth, but when I swallowed it, it turned sour in my stomach. Um, There's judgment tied in with what he ate and that that sourness of judgment that's coming, you know, like it's going to be hard to bear. That's where the sourness comes from. It's a good sour because judgment needs to come. Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Take refuge in him. Take refuge in the word the joy that comes to you in that place. But there's more. The word is not just the story of God. It is a manifestation of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus. If you go to Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 3, Then God said, said, let there be light, and there was light. Verse 6, then God said, let there be space between the waters, and there was. Verse 9, then God said, let the waters beneath the sky flow together into one place. 
Verse 14, then God said, let great lights appear in the sky, and they did. Verse 26, then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like ourselves. God said, and it was. Now go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Do you hear this? Do you hear the word? Do you hear Jesus, right? Jesus is the word. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Ephesians 3.17, it says that Christ may dwell in your hearts. So there's this dwelling of the word of Christ in Colossians, and there's this dwelling of Christ in us in Ephesians. And um, there's a theologian scholar named I. Howard Marshall, and he points out how Paul, in these two verses— and the verses are making similar points. You can go read them. He equates, Paul equates the word with Christ. And there's not really a completely clean way to grasp this concept. Like, how is my God, who is Trinity, the word through which creation happened, the word alive and active, I don't know fully, and it's okay. There's some mystery there, and I'm, we need to be okay with mystery. If you're real rational and you have to figure out all that, like you're going to lose something. I'm not saying to be dumb. I'm not saying to not think about it, but there's, there's, you miss the beauty in who Jesus is in the word. So Jesus is the word. Creation happened through the word. Creation happened through Jesus. But it's vital to understand this concept because Jesus is the word because he's the embodiment of truth through his life, his teaching, and his actions. He has become word so that we can be part of his story. Story is made up of words put together. And we're part of this story, this word. We vibe with this. There's something deep in our spirit that says, yes, this is my story. This is my story. Jesus' word, because because we are a part of his story, and his story speaks and embodies truth and life. In John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. And later in the same chapter, he says, but anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise that person at the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is to drink. We are to consume what truly nourishes us. Jesus nourishes us. The passage says to eat him and drink him. The Greek word for when Jesus says to to eat my flesh is this very active word that means to gnaw, okay? And when you look it up in the official Greek dictionary for the Bible, it says to gnaw like on a raw vegetable, which is a pretty vivid picture. Okay, think of broccoli. We typically don't eat broccoli. We eat broccoli raw, like a big old hunk of broccoli, Who loves gnawing on a big old hunk of broccoli? Yeah, I know you're out there. I know you're there. Thank you for having the confidence to raise your hand. Some people will even, do you guys eat the the, the trunk of the tree too? Do you? Yes, you do. 
Because that's probably the healthiest part. Because the healthiest part is always the worst tasting part. I don't know that in this case. But I don't want to watch somebody eat that. That's an active, engaged, eating thing. That's a feeding frenzy. That's a lion on a zebra. Human on big chunk of broccoli. But that's what Jesus is talking about. Come gnaw on me. And we go, ooh, that's cannibalism. Ooh, that's unhealthy. That's disgusting. That's not what decent humans do. That's not what indecent humans do, right? And, and we know Jesus isn't saying literally come gnaw on me, but he's making it this active thing. Get down and dirty with me. Take me in, in the most intimate way. Like I am a piece of food. I am the bread of life. I give you nourishment. He is the word, and we're supposed to eat the word, because we hear that in Second Peter and throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. First Peter, sorry. He tells us to eat him. So there's this intimate connection with Jesus as word about taking him in, taking him in, taking him in. It is so important. So back to First Peter chapter, end of chapter one, chapter two. So there's the, it starts off with this picture of this, this newborn baby developing properly and getting the proper nourishment into their body. And then that baby grows up. They grow up. So go, go back to First Peter, keeping you on your toes today, flipping around. First Peter 2, 4. And it says, you are coming to Christ. So you're getting this right nourishment. And in verse 4, you are coming to Christ. What's taking us to Christ? It's that ingestion of the right nourishment, right, of the word. In that, because Jesus is the word, we get him. We experience him. We live in him. You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He is rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. Now, my Bible, which is the New Living Translation, says you are, um, uh, you are being built into his spiritual temple. If you have like an ESV, which is probably more accurate tra- translation, says you are being built into a spiritual house or a spiritual home, okay? So you're, built, you're being built up into become this spiritual house. It has a much more family, familial sounding than a spiritual temple. I like that translation. It's more accurate. Um, so a newborn baby that is nourished properly with the right food eventually becomes a toddler. And toddlers poop and pee in their pants, and they destroy your home. You can buy things at the store, all kinds of things to protect the toilet seat, the cabinets, the door handles, um, so many, the stairs, everything, the crib, everything. But they still find a way around it. They destroy things. They tear your world apart. And they're cute. So we let them do it. But we get mad because we want to control things and they are not controllable and they're not like they're part of the family, but, but they don't really contribute to the family. I just look back at Laura Weaver and I, I got to tell this story. I wasn't going to share this, but we were at their house for a small group last week and, and we get in the car and I say to Sammy, what were the kids doing in the house who were under proper childcare supervision under Bethany Wanamaker's fine eye. And so this is not a reflection on Bethany whatsoever. Sammy, I said, what were you doing? Well, we played hide and go seek. Sammy says, I hid on top of their refrigerator. And I said, and he said, but Luke found me. Luke is little. Luke shouldn't be climbing on top of the refrigerators. So I'm like, oh no, Luke, so how did you get on top of the refrigerator? Well, I climbed onto the counter first. Okay. Do you know where Sammy learned to climb on top of the refrigerator? From me. Because when we play hide and go seek at our house, I climb on top of our refrigerator using the kitchen chair. We don't have a counter by. And so I pull the chair over and then, and then when I'm on top of the fridge, you have to slide it back under the table because if the chair's in the middle of the kitchen, they know where you're hiding if it's next to the fridge, right? So I would kind of do this like, and then it slides like four feet across the kitchen. You try to get it right back under its spot at the kitchen table. I thought it was cool. I thought I was the cool dad at the time when I did this, you know, five years ago when Sammy was four. 
he follows me as his model. So I, I texted Laura and said, um, hey, so Luke saw Sammy climb up on top of your fridge, just so you're aware. Um, I don't want him to get hurt. He learned it from me. Sorry. She handled it really graciously. Anyway, that wasn't part of my sermon. Funny side story, kind of connected, but kind of not. But the idea that kids will, I was concerned that Luke was going to like do damage to himself. But kids, they don't, they don't really contribute when they're younger. They, they don't really contribute. They kind of turn our lives upside down. They do turn our lives upside down. They teach us some things. But the older our kids get, if you have kids, eventually they start doing things like strapping themselves into their seat or riding on roller coasters or, you know, cleaning something without making it worse. Right? Should I put their dishes away or should I tell them to? If I tell them to, it's going to be a mess. I'm going to have to redo it anyway, and it's going to take more time. But if I tell them to, then they're going to learn to put their dishes away. We have to make these decisions as parents, right? So, but eventually kids grow up into the family and they're a part of the family and they're, they're helpful. Kids, you're not just here to be helpful, okay? You're much more than that. But we as parents love when you're helpful, okay? That's the only reason I had student transitions in here today was to say that to them. No, no. You grow up and then you start saying things, Savannah says to me in the car, Dad, why did you get so angry about that other driver? And I say, I was wrong. You're right. Dad, why are you so angry right now? It hurts me. I don't think you should be that angry. Or, Dad, I'm really struggling with this thing. Yeah, I struggle with the same thing. So, Kids become a part of the family, and then they become a, a contributor to the family. They grow up with the proper nutrition and the proper parenting into a part of this. This is what this passage is saying. With the right nutrition in your relationship with Jesus, you go from this baby, but then you become this living stone, and then you're built into the family house. And then you're given a role in that family house, and you become a priest, right? Because this is God's house. This is a spiritual house. And you become a priest there. And you offer up, through the mediation of Christ, these spiritual sacrifices. It's God's home. Priests, you and me, are the ones who live there. What do priests do? They offer spiritual sacrifices. This is a very important home that we grow up into, just like our kids grow up into our families. And we offer spiritual sacrifices that matter in the world. It's not a sacrifice for sin, because Jesus took care of that on the cross. It's another kind of sacrifice. It's a sacrifice that we make to show the world. So we love in places where the world says we shouldn't love. Spiritual sacrifice. We offer healing in places in the world where there's brokenness, that the world says we'd like that brokenness to be there. We'd like these groups to exist separately. But no, we offer sacrifices that say no to that. We bring mercy instead of judgment. Romans 12.1, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. When the, when the priests in the Old Testament sacrificed animals, it was a worshipful act towards God when we offer spiritual sacrifices as living stones, a part of this building that's God's building, that's God's home, that Christ is the cornerstone of, we offer spiritual sacrifices that please God and that the world can see. They see what's going on. Except like, like uh, Peter's recipients in this letter, we are susceptible to the ways of the world. And Romans 12, 2 says, Don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. And Peter's essentially saying the same thing. He's saying, you're being built into this home. Christ is the cornerstone. But but it's kind of different because, like, the builders who were building this home, they looked at that cornerstone and said, nah, doesn't cut it. It doesn't have the right size. It doesn't have the right shape. In fact, it's not, it's not suitable to be part of this home. It's not right. It's what the religious leader said. 
Christ not the cornerstone of this building? God said, yes, he is. And he builds on him. And then he starts putting these other living stones around this cornerstone. And he builds this spiritual home through which the priests, the living stones, offer sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices. So the rejected stone becomes the cornerstone. 2.8 says, He is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they do not obey God's word. And so they meet the fate that was planned for them. So Peter's writing to say, look, you are susceptible to stumbling over this stone that has been put in your way that is the cornerstone. If you don't take in, eat the right food, this milk, this pure spiritual milk, this nourishment, the word of God that is Jesus Christ, if you don't eat it, you're going to trip over it. And it's not going to be pretty. That's just the way that it is. So people, you're living in this world that's mean and nasty and coming against you, and there's going to be these temptations to trip over Jesus. Don't trip over him. Eat him. And be built up into this family of God. So the warning goes out from Peter. But the same is true for us here at Cornerstone. We are susceptible to the world. We are susceptible to outside influence. We are susceptible to tripping over the cornerstone and losing our place as a living stone in that building, in that spiritual home, losing the privilege of offering up sacrifices that are mediated by Christ. And ultimately, in the end, we end up like that girl in the second parable that I told, right? Life looks good. Good family, good upbringing, good eating, good vacations, good in the community, good church, good teaching, not eating. And life becomes about, in her story, the name, a different name, the family name. It's good, but it's not the best. It's not what God has for her. For the gospel to be an ornament in her life, for the gospel to be an accessory. Oh, she's the one who works at the business. Oh, that's such a great family. Oh, she does a great job over there. She's so great. Oh, and she also goes to this church and does good things. It's just not good enough tripping over Christ in that place. If we stop eating right, then we lose our corporate identity. Verse 9 in chapter 2 in 1 Peter says, um, you are not like that. You are not like the ones who trip over. Like, you're susceptible to it, but you are not like that. That is not your identity. You are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. Okay, so that's identity. Out of that identity, what does life look like? Glad you asked. He says it. Verse, uh, part, second part of verse 9. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness and into this wonderful light. If we don't have the gospel in us, if we aren't chewing on it and chewing on Christ, then we don't have the means and the ability to go out there to the world, to go out there to this city and reveal God's goodness. Because it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit in the story of development. The development of a human, the development of a spiritual human in this passage, it doesn't work. You can't go pretend if you don't have it. You know, like the phrase, you are what you eat, you know? And whatever we eat, it comes out of us in some way. You know, it gives us energy to do things that we want to do. It, uh, it, it heals our body. Or it 
makes our body unhealthy or it takes energy away. So if we eat the right stuff, it comes out of us in the right way. So we eat the good news, we eat the gospel, we eat Christ, and then it comes out of us in the appropriate way. It comes out of us in how we go to our city, how we go to our community. The gospel alive in us as people of God means the gospel alive in the community where God has placed us as his bride. God has put Cornerstone in this city for a reason so that people would know who he is. Cornerstone has a role in this. God has Cornerstone on the precipice of something that might bring fear into our hearts. Sharing his truth in our community, sharing his words, his words in this city. And we might say, well, I'm not an evangelist. I I don't, that's not my gift. Cool. I'm not an evangelist either. I get it. I know that fear. What are they going to think of me when I share Jesus with them? How do I share Jesus with them? What do I say? What kind of open door do I have? I don't want to be rude. I don't know their story. Last Sunday, Tim Deering came and um, he taught on this, which is great. I, was listening, I wasn't in his sermon. I was teaching upstairs. I listened to his sermon this week. And Tim said, he was talking about the gospel going forth from Cornerstone into our city. And he was talking about Paul's missionary journeys and how the Lord stopped Paul and his companions at certain spots and said, no, don't go there, go there. You know, okay, now stop, now, now go here. You know, and, and God opened up the, for the gospel to be spoken in places that was unexpected, like in the middle of this Roman jail, this seat of darkness in their culture. And God did it. God did it. And he said, you got to pray. You pray first, Right. But we're never even going to get to that stage of praying if the gospel isn't alive in us, if we're not eating it. We're never going to get to prayer because we're not going to care. Pray first, then speak the testimony of Jesus, then preach the gospel. Tim said, testify to Christ's work in your own life. You have a story that gets told with words. God has a story that gets told in words. Your story and God's story connect. You tell your story, God's story is coming out. The door is open. Tim said, find out where God is at work and speak his truth. He also said this comes at a cost. The enemy does not want this. But he also said, God is building his church by God's authority and not by any other authority. We're afraid at times to speak the good news because of how people will respond. But when it's preceded by prayer and with the full authority of God himself, lives are changed and his church is built. And this isn't about numbers. This isn't about us getting over our guilt or shame about sharing God's love. This is about being actively involved in a way that like brings life to our spirit, that God chooses us to share his story because we have a story to tell as well. Um, So a couple examples. So 20 years ago, I was into um, reading about other world religions and what they believe and why they believe that. And I was reading about Jehovah's Witnesses. And um, I'm like, you know, I could interact with these folks. I mean, they come to your door, right? So I was living with these people in Anvil at the time who lived in this semi-rural area. So I started praying, God would you please bring a Jehovah's Witness to their door? I'm sure you've prayed the same prayer at some time in your life. And I prayed this prayer. Two weeks later. Hi, we're from the local Kingdom Hall, and we've been walking in the neighborhood. There's no neighborhood here. I don't know if that's what they said, but there was houses around And so we got to sit down and have this conversation and I could show the goodness of God to them, which is what Peter talks about. And I invited them back and they didn't come. 
they had to talk to their bishop, and the bishop must have put a kibosh on the whole thing. But anyway, but I was like, no way, God. Like, I prayed for an opportunity to share your love and your goodness with a particular kind of person. And you did it. You brought somebody to their door. That was awesome. It was a, it was a, a lady and her niece. Um, I've got two guys in my life that I'm friends with um, through different channels in my life um, in the realm of the city of Lebanon. And I love them. And I want them to know Jesus. Not so I can put two dashes on my belt buckle and say, yep, converted two people. That's right. No, I love them. And I know that their story connects with God's story. And I want, the, and I want to be in a place of privilege to help them make that connection. So we hang out. And so I'm praying simply, God, like open the door. That, that I can show them through my story, through their story, your goodness. Because I want them to know it because I love them. Not because I have a duty as a Christian, but because I love them. And I know about you, and I know your word, and I'm eating it, and it's so good. And I want them to eat the same meal that I'm eating, because why would I want them to eat crap when there's something better? And I love them, and I love God. Um, our deacon team last week prayed for Vicky. Vicky, is it okay if I share that we prayed for you? It's a little too late for me to ask now, huh? Wow, 0 for 2 on that front in this service so far. Nancy, you're not alone. Um, so Vicky works in post-abortion ministry at SVPS, and she was praying about sharing God's truth with people that she's in relationship with. And these women that are have so much brokenness because of abortion that they've had in the past in their life, and they're seeking healing. And Vicky has this awesome opportunity to like share the goodness of God in the midst of brokenness. The world says, not okay. It doesn't matter. You're not actually broken. You're not actually hurting. You made the right choice. But she's hurting. And Vicky says, let me bring this story. Let me tell you about the goodness of this God that I know. Because Vicky loves them. And so we prayed for Vicky. We prayed, we prayed, we prayed. Because we want that door to be open for Vicky more and more. Um, next month, women's prison ministry, be on guard. We're going to be praying for you. We're going to invite you. So we're going to pray for your role the same way as you share the goodness of God, his word in the prison here in Lebanon. Um, what, what does it look like? We're going to be praying for uh, Harding. We do that every year. Um, we get assigned to pray for Harding as the school year kicks off. Think about being part of that. I think it's Saturday, August 25th. I think that's a date. It's going to be in the Bolton in a couple weeks coming up. You know, there is some pretty cool openings in the Lebanon School District for the truth of God to be spoken. Like, I am amazed at the people that I've run into over the past couple of months that are believers that are strategically placed in that school. Oh, my goodness, Cornerstone. There's going to be some cool opportunities coming up for you guys to get involved. I'll let you know when that stuff happens, too. But prayer has opened those doors. Prayer has opened those doors. How does God want us as a church collectively to be engaged taking his gospel from here? Like the gospel's here. Like it's in me, but it also needs to be here. Like justice and mercy needs to happen here, right? Healing needs to happen here. Um, uh, Compassion needs to happen I don't know anything. They just got, and they're just an example, right? Like it needs to happen here. It needs to happen between us as the body so that the body goes in ways that God wants to show us where to go. Um, So some examples there for us to consider. Um, Who are you praying for in your life that you would just love to see God's word enrapture them, take hold of them, change their life because you love them and you know God loves them, pray for them. Ask other people at Cornerstone to pray for them with you. Ask God for open doors. The gospel doesn't get presented the same time all the time. Sometimes it's with words. Sometimes it's without words. Sometimes it's right from scripture. Sometimes it's a story from your life. But it all goes back to here, to the truth, to Jesus. 
Let's pray together for those things in a bit. Peter declares to his recipients who they are and what they must do, who they are. This is your identity and this is your calling. Cornerstone, this is your identity. This is your calling. We must crave pure spiritual milk. We must cry out for this nourishment. We are coming to Christ. We are growing into a full experience of salvation. We are a chosen people. We are a royal priesthood. We are God's very special possession. Don't you think he wants to do this stuff in our lives and in our community? Yeah, I think so. We can show others the goodness of God. We are offering spiritual sacrifices. So we're going to eat together right now. We're going to take communion. Um, If you're a follower of Jesus, um, I ask you to please join us for that. Um, At Cornerstone, Uh, We rip a piece of the loaf off and we dip it in the juice and we take the body and the blood of Christ. Um, Josh and Tracy Farr are going to be serving communion. Um, Dennis Brubaker and Penny Durr will be praying. Um, I would ask you to seek prayer from Dennis and Penny. Um, Ask for prayer specifically if you are finding yourself unmoved by the word of God in places where you know God wants to move. If you are unmoved by the word of God in places where you know God wants to move. Secondly, ask for prayer if you are faithful. Sorry. If you are fearful of what it may mean for you or for us as a church to go out there to our city or to your neighbor to share God's goodness under his, his authority so that he can build his church. And I say his church, I, I don't necessarily mean cornerstone. I mean his church. If you are fearful in that, and you would love for God to open up doors for his living and active word to pierce the lives of people that you might know, how might God use you in that place? Ask for prayer for that.